Well, hello and welcome to the latest JLL Life Science Clustering Insights podcast. This is a series of conversations with key players in the fast-growing life science real estate world. And today I'm speaking with my colleague, Travis McCready, who heads up the life science practice for JLL in the US. Travis, thank you so much for joining me today from Boston in the US. Would you just mind in introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background? Excellent. Of course, Glenn, it's great to be with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, again, Travis McCready, I'm the uh, national practice leader for life sciences markets for North America, for JLL. Uh, I've been with the firm for about uh, half a year now and uh, immediately came from an early stage uh, equity-backed uh, research company here in the U.S. And pr previous to that, I was the CEO of a $1.6 billion life sciences funding agency uh, that invested in translational research all the way through to mature scaling companies. And uh, prior to that, long professional history in the innovation economy, working with tech and uh, life sciences companies uh, here in Massachusetts. I spent a good amount of my time on SABs and uh, supporting early stage companies in the life sciences still. So uh, I like to uh, stay close to the science and close to emerging technologies that are uh, evolving out of the life sciences ecosystem. That's fantastic. What a great background to have at this time when the, the, the sector is so hot, having that must give you a real understanding of uh, the user base and the occupiers of the, the sort of buildings that we're talking about today. It does. It, it gives me at least a small window, Glenn, into uh, tomorrow, not just, not just today. Uh, from a commercial real estate standpoint, it, it's, a, it's a vector for understanding who tomorrow's users will be. Um, as their as their technologies mature and disrupt the ecosystem, um, and I, I'm very I'm very fortunate that I, I do have that that vantage point to peek around corners every once in a while. That's fantastic because it is such a fast moving industry, and that's what makes it so exciting, isn't it? So everybody in Europe looks across the pond to the U.S. in awe at the scale and intensity of the life science market both from a corporate and a real estate point of view, actually. So can we kick off and you just give me an overview of what's happening in the US life science real estate market at the moment? How hot is the sector? It's, um, it's extremely hot. It was before the pandemic uh, for a lot, a lot of reasons that I'll, that I'll go into in some, in some detail, but the pandemic also seems to have accelerated the commercial real estate aspect of the market um, even um, even faster. So for, prior to the pandemic, the sort of the underlying technologies of the life sciences are, are reaching a level of maturity that have improved and, and also accelerated the amount of entrepreneurship and companies that are growing um, in the space. Um, it's it's hard to believe, Glenn, but it's been 20 years since we uh, we mapped the human genome. Um, it was Febu February we we celebrated the the 20th anniversary of mapping the human genome, 
and the, the entire fields of cell and gene therapy, genomics, um, immuno-oncology, and, and uh, hacking into uh, the immune system to develop new drugs and therapies has, has improved radically um, as a result of, of, of that discovery. Um, and so we were already on a trajectory in the U.S., with record-breaking venture capital amounts, stable federal funding, we were already on a trajectory in the commercial real estate market of a, a growing and spreading life sciences ecosystem. And then COVID hit and our operation warp speed. For the first time, we really deployed federal funding, not just towards basic research, but towards commercialization efforts as well. And that threw billions of, of net new money um, into uh, the life sciences, the result of which were more companies seeking commercial real estate space. And then on top of that, the, the real kicker, um, at least from the commercial real estate standpoint, was uh, the, uh, the, the death of office and hospitality um, markets um, for these institutional investors, um, as, as that radically tapered off, these institutional investors needed to find a haven for billions of dollars worth of capital. And the alternative asset classes were the, were the winners, cold storage, data centers, and of course, the life sciences. Um, these, these, these asset classes were not only stable, but actually grew significantly through the pandemic. It led to a, a, just a unique moment of additional capital, institutional capital, uh, coming into the sector that's never been there before. It's, it's been extraordinary, the, the yeah. under, underlying growth. And, and I guess one of the, the other things that, um, investors have picked up on, which has been highlighted by the decline in retail and, and, and other sectors related to that, is that the the life science real estate and science real estate actually in general is is pretty much immune to economic cycles. And you don't see those dips that you do in the wider economy because it just keeps on going. You might see a sort of a slight slowing and uh, an acceleration, but generally the trend is upwards continuously, and, and that suddenly becomes very attractive in the current climate, I imagine. You're absolutely right. In the life sciences, it's, it's important to remember that this, the scale, in terms of the square footage, the scale of the life sciences industry is radically smaller than industrial and office overall. Um, so in the U.S., there's only about 140 million square feet of lab space um, in the U.S., which is roughly 1% the overall industrial real estate um, by square footage available. So uh, you, you're absolutely right that particularly in the life sciences, with, with that little amount of space, there's a high unlikelihood that there's going to be a tapering off in value in, in fact, there's going to be an increase in value. Uh, that type of small market um, that gets high, highly traded at high values um, is just going to translate into an overall growing, growing niche market in terms of profitability for investors and occupiers um, alike. That's, that's really interesting, the point you made about the life sciences occupying about 1% of the industrial real estate. I didn't realize it was 
was that small, you assume that the, you know, the scale of the US market is really, um, really huge. But actually, yes, I mean, it's, the US market as a whole is really huge. But, but where, where do you think this could go? I mean, 140 million today in 10 years time is, I know it's a difficult question to answer. Yeah, I think the, the, the really cool part of that is um, of that 140 roughly million of square feet, square feet of space, um, most of it is controlled Glenn by about 10 developers slash landlords. Um, they control about over 50% of that lab space. And the remaining 50% is controlled by about 700 or so uh, different landlords. What, what we see in 10 years is, is two fundamental shifts. One is a radical increase in the amount of lab space um, that gets built. And then secondly, an increase in the number of landlords that hold um, high percentages or control high percentages of, of, of that right. space. So we expect, you know, that, that number of 10 to double to maybe 15 or 20. There are some landlords out, new landlords out there that are uh, well-funded, are already in the process of occupying and or building more space. This all bodes really well just for the sector because there, there's just there's simply not enough lab space out there to meet the demand for, for companies that are, that are coming out of academic institutions, research institutions, and, a lot, and the like. So a, a very rosy and bullish picture, I think, for, uh, for the short and long term. And in relation to the increase in that sort of core group from 10 to 15 or, or whatever, clearly we know that Boston is, is at the, the heart of this. Uh, San Franciscans might, might dispute that, but uh, I think we can say that Boston is, is in the lead. But, uh, but uh, from what I understand, there's quite a few other up-and-coming locations in, in the U.S. And what, what's happening there? You're, you're right that there's a sort of a hegemony that's existed for, for, for decades in the, life, in the life sciences. The three major markets have been uh, Greater Boston, San Francisco, Bay Area, and San Diego. This is one of those areas where actually uh, the San Franciscans can't dispute. Uh, when you take a look at uh, how much lab space is available in Greater Boston compared to the Bay Area, it's, there's almost... 2x um, the amount of lab space available in Greater Boston, but the but the really fun thing and, and the exciting thing across the U.S. Um, there's this massive network of research universities, land grant universities uh, across the U.S. The 50 largest NIH supported um, universities are not just concentrated in California and Massachusetts; they're spread all over. And all of these states, all of these research institutions have watched and learned as Boston, San Diego, and San Francisco have gotten it right in terms of building their ecosystems and have put, in some cases, decades worth of policy changes and economic development initiatives, uh, tax incentives, and community building initiatives, and have created really formidable ecosystems in their own right. The great thing about this ecosystem is that it has spread. It's no longer just concentrated in, in three cities. Scientists and scientific founders, they have choices now. And I think that ultimately bodes well, not only just for, for the life sciences, but it also bodes well for, for patients in terms of accelerating the discoveries that, that will ultimately make it to market. Uh, that that is really interesting, and and 
Uh, are you suggesting that there are sort of policy initiatives that are enabling those locations to thrive and develop and they're, they're, they're following on from the examples that have been set by Boston? And Absolutely. I can remember uh, a decade, decade and a half, a half ago, a location that thought they could compete just by building nice lab buildings. And if there's any lesson that you learn from from Boston and San Francisco, uh, you, you learn that it's, it's not about the real estate. It's about the people. It's about talent. It's about intellectual property generated by the talent. It's about the commercialization skills and skill set. And it's about building a community that supports those people. Uh, and that community is, is housing and entertainment, transportation, K to 12 education, um, all of the accoutrement of a vital and vibrant community are the are actually in, in many cases more important than the lab space itself. And that's how, and that's the lesson that that communities are learning. Uh, some are learning a little bit rap more rapidly than others, but that's the lesson that communities have learned over the past decade, uh, decade and a half. That's that's interesting. So it, you know, it's, as as we say, it's what it's not about the walls; it's what goes on between the walls that's that's important. And exactly, uh, and that that is yeah particularly relevant here in the UK. I think because what we're Interestingly, we're starting to hear investors and developers talk about ecosystems a lot more than they ever have done before. It's like the everybody's cotton on to this idea that you can't, just as you say, you can't just stick up a building and put a label on the door and say this is a life science center. You have to do more than that. The common theme that emerges when you talk to early stage companies about being in these ecosystems and clustering around their competitors is 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 really about collaboration and it's not just about collaboration between between scientists it's about sharing and using each other's core facilities if you're right. if you're a young company and you have limited venture funding or risk capital funding or funding from the uh, your your federal government you probably may not be able to afford all the core facilities that you need so why not choose to locate in a destination where you can draft and borrow your competitor's uh, fMRI or cryo EM or um, some expensive piece of infrastructure or draft off of the core facilities of a university um, or academic medical facility and when you think of when you think of the scientific endeavor in that through that lens of of needing access to these really specialized and exceptionally expensive pieces of equipment, you understand that clustering makes a ton of sense. Yeah. yeah. It's not yeah. just a, it's not just a, a, um, a nice to have, it's a must have. Yes. That's, that's, and that's why you get places like Boston, Kendall square and, uh, other locations around there just booming. It becomes a, a virtuous circle, doesn't it? Once it gets started, it will keep reinforcing itself. Indeed, I um in my in my previous role, Glenn, when I was when I mentioned the one point six billion dollar funding agency, over three hundred thirty million of those 
uh, of that money we spent on nothing but core facilities. Right. And the the deal was um, to any recipient of funding, if we if we buy this, you have to promise to make it available openly available to anyone within um, the state of Massachusetts. And the notion was, again, if you, you look at, you look at a state more differently, if you know you have access to these facilities. Yes, a huge boost, I imagine, to, to early, particularly to very early stage companies. And as you say, it's, it's really expensive. And, and for investors, you know, investors don't want their money going into a company and then going straight out in the form of NMRs or MUS specs or whatever it might be to, to fund equipment. They wanted to go and develop the, re- the research. So about the occupiers, so are you, are you seeing any uh, trends in the sort of space that clients are looking for at the moment? Yeah, I, I'd say there, there are two major trends. Uh, one, obviously, is bread and butter lab space. And obviously, as, I, as I'm sure is happening in the UK, cell and gene therapy as a modality is, is on the rise. And so lab space that is fit out and appropriate for um, cell and gene therapy is, is probably one of the most highly demanded um, sought after types of, uh, types of lab space. And then the second is advanced biomanufacturing space. And in this category, the trend is sort of somewhat twofold. The preference is particularly for for companies that are choosing to uh, engage in biomanufacturing themselves uh, and, and self-perform. Preference is for, let's say, 100 to 150,000 square feet of warehouse of warehouse space someplace proximate to the R&D urban core where in that warehouse space you can build modular clean rooms and other and other modular technologies to perform preclinical and clinical manufacturing for the more well-heeled scaling company um, if they have the money if they have the capital they'll build net new perhaps you know spend 100 to 120 million dollars to build a manufacturing facility that has the capacity and capabilities to scale into commercial manufacturing if the company is to be were to be successful with with the FDA, we are the the number of of advanced biomanufacturing requirements and requests has just taken off like a rocket the past yeah. five years, and there's there's not enough of that raw warehouse space inventory available. And are you seeing uh, commercial investors and developers stepping up to the plate to deliver this? Because this is quite a risky area for them to get involved in. Uh, a- absolutely, and we're we're the past uh, six months or so, we've really seen uh, commercial investors and developers take a hard look at the economics. I, I can say that one or two have made the plunge, um, and and are have specifically targeted building biomanufacturing space and um, those those products have not stayed on the shelf long they've been very successful um, and the economics have, have have worked out for them very well but it is not yet a um, commonly understood um, and the risk profile for 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 this asset is not yet commonly well understood by commercial investors to to see a lot of deal flow yet but i i expect that there that will happen 
in the in very short order yeah fascinating and and um it's really really interesting seeing these whole new areas emerge and um yeah the it's difficult to see how this is going to go away as well because this is how how um therapy is going to be delivered in the future isn't it so it's not it's not a flash in the pan but it seems like this uh express train that there is the u.s life science sector has got a long way to go yet and it still feels like it's still picking up speed it's a great great time to be in the in the sector it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you travis um we need to wrap it up there unfortunately i haven't even got through half my questions i don't think that i had but um so maybe we can do this again in in six months time uh so thank you very much and uh, really appreciate your time thanks